0: As you hopefully know by now, unless you've just uh, started coming here, we're working on a particular sermon series that is my work towards doing a doctoral degree, which is not important or anything like that. Really what's important is what we're doing here. And you may have hopefully caught by now that one of the undertones or themes that I've not explicitly said but have been alluding to is that going to church is pretty important for a Christian. Have you caught that? All right. Good. It's very, very important, and, and one of my major theses in what we're doing across this sermon series is that the world is wrestling and grappling for your soul with ideas and concepts that are anti-Christian or anti-Christ, and they're pretty subtle, and a lot of times they're kind of not that big of a deal, except they're different than what Christ and our Scripture and the Spirit are calling us to be. And so church is the moment or the time or the place that we re-narrate our lives inside of who Christ is calling us to be, and we do it together so that we are then sent to be Christians in the world. And so it's vitally important that we go to church, and we are becoming more and more lax about going to church. In fact, today in the Christian calendar across churches all across the world is Christ the King Sunday. Have you ever heard of Christ the King Sunday? All right, today is Christ the King Sunday. It's a celebration that Christ is King. And it was instituted in the 1920s, so just under 100 years ago, by the Pope who looked across the world and said, the world is getting too secular. We need to remember that Christ is the King. Not governments, not politics, not pop culture, not what we want to do, not other activities that we can have. We need to be reminded annually that Christ is the King of our lives. And we need to remember how... how uh, Incredible, his sacrifice was on the cross so that he could be named King of the World. And so today is a celebration and a reminder, and, and it's a hundred years in the making, really, that Christ is the King, and that we've started to lose sight of that. Now, the Pope's response was particularly to Catholics and Christians, not just the fact that there were Muslims and Buddhists in the world, but he was looking at Christians and the church and saying, What is happening a hundred years ago? And we're now two or three generations removed. From already that sort of um, uh, modern sort of concept of me, I'm important, I'm the center of the world. And so today we're going to talk again about this wrestling of pop culture and, and theology and who we are to be in this world today. And today we're going to talk particularly about the sermon, why it is that we listen to sermons. And so I try to set up each of these things that we do in service with an explanation beforehand of why it is we do it. And the sermon, I think, is one of the most interesting things because it's taken for granted that that's what you go and hear at church. You hear the preacher talk, right? That's part of what happens. But did you know that the idea of sermon as we understand it or we experience it today is a fairly modern concept in Christianity? As in the the idea of a 20 to 35-minute sermon is only about 500 years old? Did you know this? All right. Some of you did really it's a it's a byproduct of the protestant reformation which happened around 1500 the late 1400s and what happened is martin luther famously walked up to the uh the doors of the cathedral in this town he nailed 95 theses against it and those 95 theses really had a lot to do with the fact that the catholic church was messing up big time and uh messing up religion messing up people and that these 95 theses were things that he wanted to call the church back to now Churches in general don't really respond really well to people saying there's 95 things wrong with you, now give, fix them. And so predictably, the Catholic Church wasn't very happy with him. And so eventually, Luther sort of begins to wonder if he's, if he's ruined everything all the worse, but people rally around him and say, you know, I think you're right. And so what happens is a schism or a break in the church. And the Protestant uh, Protestant stream of the Christian religion begins to form, which we're a part of, and there begins this big battle between the Catholics and the Protestants, and this battle still lives strong in some places, especially in, say, Ireland and Scotland and places like that where there's battles and wars over which side of the Christian faith you're on, which, I mean, I don't want to lay my cards out on the table too early, but... Many of those people shooting each other haven't read the Sermon on the Mount now, have they? Right? I mean, this this idea that we're angry over how to be Christians, so we're going to go to battles with each other, I mean, it's kind of missing the point. But in the Protestant Reformation, they decided that they so desperately needed to defend the schism that they had broken from the Catholic Church that they started preaching longer and longer and longer to defend what it is they saw and what it is they believed. And not only did they want to defend what it is they saw and they believed, they wanted to return to the scripture and theology and devotion and put that back into the hands of the lay people. And they also thought that salvation through Jesus Christ was a decisive step in salvation that people needed to place their trust in God in order for it and not just receive that someone told them that God had saved them. And so more and more the Protestants wanted to place the feeling of religion into a belief in the actual mind of individuals in the church. They didn't want to just say, well, the church says it, therefore it's true, but they wanted the Protestant people to actually believe it and own it in their own hearts, in their own lives. And so the sermons got longer and longer and longer because it was a time for instruction and a time of evoking and a time of trying to get people to buy into it on their own. And so that's sort of the tradition that we have received to today. Now, for the first 1,500 years of the Christian faith... The sermon would be very short. It was called a homily. It would maybe be five minutes long, a a, a quick little uh, uh, retelling of the scripture that was read that day. And what was really important was the reading of scripture and the taking of communion. For 1,500 years, that's what Christian worship looked like, word and table. Every time they gathered together, they would read the scripture, and then they would receive communion together. And that one person from the congregation, usually one who was more educated, more trained, would rise out of the congregation and would share just a few words of reflection on the scripture that had been read that day, and they would go and they would sit back down. Ordained ministry in those days often looked like monasticism, where people would go and they would pray in a, in a convent or a monastery and study and learn and translate the scriptures into their own thing. That's what ordained ministry usually looked like. Christian worship usually looked like word and table. And so we have sort of received this history of Protestantism where we proclaim and tell. And there's both good and bad about that. I'm trying not to really like stand on one side or the other. Clearly I'm Protestant, so you can kind of get the idea of what side I stand on. And you could also get the idea that I ramble on for like ever every Sunday. So I think that preaching is important. So you get all these things. But there's something I think that we've lost also in the early Christian tradition of making the scripture speak for itself as very important, and then receiving the grace that comes in the table week after week. So that's kind of the history of, of sermon speaking, where it comes from. So now let's talk about why it matters to our Christian life. First, you know, I mean, we've all kind of had pastors that were maybe a, a little boring, right? <laughs> Some of you may be thinking that right now, and that's cool. I understand. I have bored plenty of people in my time. And so it sort of gets to the point that the caricature of the pastor is an old, boring man who just rambles and rambles and rambles. One of my favorite characters in all of pop culture is Reverend Lovejoy of The Simpsons. And he owns this caricature so, so very well. And so we're just going to see real quick his preaching style and see how all that melds with sort of what the idea of and the the very is. Same,
1: so and the very same goes for Ezekiel. Which brings us back to our starting point, the nine tenets of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, we we may have missed that one. That's all right. Yeah, it was really good, right? Anyways, the point is that Homer falls asleep, he yells, and the preacher says, Well, I'm going to start back from the beginning. Here are the nine points of constancy. And then the whole place just is falling asleep until he has in his pulpit noises to wake them up while they're preaching. And And then they go home, the Simpsons go home, and they all start pulling off their clothes. And mom says, What are you guys doing? You're going to wrinkle your church clothes. Moms, you've been there before, right? And the kids and dad all say... This is the best time of the whole week, right now, this moment. Why is that? Because it's the longest possible time till we have to go back to church. So, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, like as a pastor, oh man, ouch, do people really say that stuff? But on the other hand, there is this sort of idea in our culture today that church is for perfect people or bored people or it's that thing that mom makes me do or I hear this one all the time. I'm 30 years old now. I put in my time when I was a kid. You ever heard that one before? I put in my time when I was a kid. I don't have to go anymore. I put in my time. Maybe as a pastor, I hear wild things about why people don't need to go to church. I want to sleep in. I want to watch the game. Oh, why don't you come this Sunday? The game starts at 4 30. No, I gotta, I gotta get ready for the game. The things you hear for why people don't want to come and listen to the sermon are absolutely unbelievable. But we're going to talk a little bit about what the sermon should function as, and particularly maybe even how Jesus understood the sermon to function. But we want to weigh that against this sort of cultural concept of you're okay, you're great, you, you are perfect the way you are, you are just so wonderful. And so we chose a song that kind of illustrates that, the sort of the self-esteem moment movement if you will and it's a song it's a song that i'm going to confess to you that i hate with all of me i just hate this song so much so i hope maybe some of you like it better some of you are going to come up and tell me you love this song i'm sorry you're wrong this song is terrible this song this song is terrible but but anyways the band is going to sing for us a song by Katy perry Katy perry is a former pastor's child grew up in the church um, even tried to break into Christian music and was told things like... Also, Jessica Simpson, if you remember her, she was also told things they were too pretty to be a Christian singer, that they would make young boys lust and stuff like this. Really strange kind of stuff. But um, So they were kicked out of the Christian music field, both of them, and they became secular singers. And Katy Perry has become like like the icon of the... You are so great. Just show how great you are to the world. And so this song is called Firework... I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's the worst setup ever. (laughs) Thanks for nothing.
0: so bad. Just a bad song. I'm sorry. And you can take it up with me if you disagree later. That's fine. (laughs) So this song to me is is kind of the pinnacle of the self-esteem movement. And the self-esteem movement is such an interesting thing to me because I feel like it really took off about when I was a kid and I saw the way that kids were dealt with. I was dealt with differently all the way through my growing up. Uh, The idea of self-esteem was first was first talked about by the um, psychologist and philosopher William James in the late 19th century. Uh, he began the conversation by noting that there's a, lack, or, or a direct link between objective qualities of a person and how a person, are, that, there's no, that there's no direct link between their qualities and how they feel about as themselves. Some people are equipped with the presumptuous and unbreakable confidence, while others who are equally as able to succeed in life are value, and are valued by others do not believe in their qualities and capabilities, and so he wanted to study and understand why it was that how people felt about their selves were not proportionate to their skills that they had, and so that conversation kept building until the 1970s, where when governments became uh, convinced by this concept of self-esteem, it began to build it into their public policy. Then from there, education started buying in. Then sports leagues started buying in, and so I was born in 1981, and I can peace out across my childhood from when there were times that I got a ribbon at best when I was a loser and a trophy for winning first or second place to then times when I began to receive pretty good-sized trophies just for showing up. For me, this is best, uh, this is best shown in the movies in a, in a movie called uh, Meet the Fockers, where a, a father, his son is now pushing 40 years old, and his father collected all of his participation ribbons and made a wall in his house celebrating his son, who was pretty mediocre growing up. And so we're going to see that clip real fast about sort of the pinnacle of this, uh, this movement.
1: PH yes, de Resistance.
2: Oh my goodness.
1: Well, something I've been working on. Oh, I see. Ah.
2: Mom will be in in a sec.
1: What's that? It's you. It's the Wall of Gaylord. The Wall of Gaylord? Isn't it nice to finally display your accomplishments, son? Yeah. Honey, look at all
2: your awards. That's great.
1: Mm. He's my champion.
2: Oh, I didn't know they made
1: ninth place ribbons. <laughs> oh, Jack, they got them all the way up to tenth place.
2: Hey, anybody
1: want to get a drink out by the lagoon? This one looks impressive. Mazel tov, Gaylord, M. Fokker, world's greatest nurse. Very nice. We have always tried to instill a sense of self in Gaylord without being too Mm goal-oriented. Not about winning or losing. It's about passion. We just wanted him to love what he's doing. You know what I mean, Jack? Not really, Bernard. I think a competitive drive is the essential key that makes America the only remaining superpower in the world today.
0: So there you go. We have this song that we sang today. It has things like saying, you don't have to feel like a wasted space. Your original cannot be replaced. Do you ever feel already buried deep six feet under? Screams, but no one else seems to hear a thing? Do you know that there's still a chance for you? Because there's a spark in you. Because baby, you're a firework. Come on and show them what you're worth. Make them go, ah, 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 as you cr- shoot across the sky. Ah, ah. Once upon a time... <laughs> American music created like Stairway to Heaven. I mean, that well, was British, wasn't it? Brits are always better than us with this stuff. And I'm, uh, I mean, I'm all for good news. I'm all for making people feel worthwhile. I, I'm all for recognizing the value in people. But we've gotten to the point now in this self-esteem movement that our, our value comes from within. And no matter where we're at, no matter who we are, no matter what sort of mistakes we're making... We say, you're okay and you're great. And and your value, we say, as a culture, is with inside of you. You've just got to find the best of you and mine it and work it out. And when you find the best of what you can possibly produce, that's when you will be fully actualized. And at that point, apparently, you will boom, boom, boom like the moon, moon, moon. <laughs> And again, I'm not against self-esteem. In fact, when I take a strength fighter's test, usually self-assurance is my number two strength. Strength. Usually that's what people like to complain about about me. Who does he think he is, right? But self-esteem is an important thing. It really is. It's really good for people to feel good about themselves. Absolutely. And, And our potential is often linked to how good we feel about ourselves. And I get all of that stuff. But the Christian value... That we're beginning to lose more and more and more is that it is christ who has done work inside of us That has made us holy And that the goal here is for us to become more like christ not more like the best I can be And we're losing that so badly now that if you were to turn on christian radio, you will hear pastor after pastor Preaching a, a shallow gospel that is just saying hey god loves you so much that he'll let you be who you are he sees good in you and wants you to be your best and so little do we anymore preach a gospel of repentance That says that god wants to come in and work with us to remove sin and help us to become holy and like christ And find that god loves us as we are But he wants to work with us for a sin no longer to reign in us So that we can become like we were meant to be from the start Not the sinful path that we're heading down that message has become so predominant otherwise in popular culture that people are beginning to leave the church and pastors are getting nervous about people leaving the church so they're reaffirming that message of just saying hey you're pretty sweet be awesome god loves you just the way you are and uh, yeah god loves you just the way you are but like a potter's project we're not finished yet And what good is going to come out of us, I believe, is the work that God is going to do through the death and resurrection of Christ that the Spirit is trying to fill us with in the world today. And this is so radically different than this sort of pop psychology Christianity that people are talking about more and more. And so, just to prove the point of the sort of preaching I think we ought to be doing in the church, I thought it would be important for us to look at the kind of preaching that Jesus did. And so, if we could, let's turn quickly to uh, Matthew chapter 4. And as you're turning there, it reminds me... uh, Yeah, I'll get to it in a second. Matthew chapter 4. This story, Jesus begins to preach right before he gives us the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll kind of poke through in just a moment. But listen to what it is that Jesus understands the preaching event to be when he begins to sense the call that God is sending him out to preach in the countrysides of his home country. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. And would you join me in standing as we read the scripture this morning? When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Nephtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah Land of Zebulun and land of Nephtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You may be seated. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. This is the message that's at the core of Matthew's gospel whenever Jesus is speaking. Repent. Now, repent, we've sort of boiled down to mean this sort of thing that means, say you're sorry to God. But that really misses what the word repentance means. The word repentance means, actually, that I'm walking in one direction. Something has happened to cause me to realize that it's the wrong direction. I turn 180 degrees and begin to walk in the other direction. Now that's much different than the confused old preacher who used to say repent and turn your life around 360 degrees to god For those of you who know geometry, that's not good It's a 180 degree turn. It's i'm heading in one direction God gets a hold of my heart and my imagination and my life and says move in my direction instead And we drop the direction that we're going which is about me about filling my needs and my wants, what I think is good for me, and saying I want to give my life and my desires and my imagination and everything to God and live in his direction. Now, repent is a whole lot bigger of a call than say you're sorry for your sins. It's a whole lot bigger of a call. It's a change in direction. It's a change in momentum. It's a change even in personality and what matters to you in life. It's a complete change. And not because, hey, I think that option's better for me, but because Christ has become real to me, that I see him so clearly. I understand that he lived and died and lives again, that he's calling me and loves me and wants to be in relationship with me. It's not just my own will to say, hey, I, I, I think this is a better option, but it's a response to the Son of God who has died for your sins so that you could live life more abundantly. And so Jesus begins to preach that sort of message, the sort of message that says, hey, you're great, but you're not living for what you were designed to be lived for. Why don't you live into your design? Your design was relationship with God, holiness, sinlessness. How about you live into that direction? And that's the sort of repentance that Jesus is talking about. There's another movie, one uh, a scene that I think is just so incredibly cheesy, but also so incredibly 1980s. And it's from the movie Rocky IV, where Rocky himself preaches a sermon of repentance. You may remember that he fights uh, Drago in Russia, right in the heart of the Cold War. And he beats the big blonde Russian man, and they put a microphone in front of him. And he begins to preach a message of repentance of all things to the Russian people who are there that day. So let's watch this and listen to uh, Rocky's little speech.
1: I came here tonight, and I didn't know what to expect. i seen a lot of people hating me, and I didn't know... What to feel about that? So, I guess I didn't like you much, none either. <laughs> During this fight, I've seen a lot of changing. В течение всего этого боя я понял, что изменилось. The way you felt about me and the way I felt about you. почувствовал, что тоже изменились. In here there were two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than twenty million. So I don't know, 20 million dollars. But what I was trying to say is that if I can change I think And you can change. Everybody can change. I just want to say one thing to my kid who should be home sleeping. Merry Christmas, kid. You can see what you better just to stop. Buddy. I love you.
0: Like changing their mind about America in the mid-1980s because of a boxing match, you know? But but yet, Rocky, he takes the moment to try to invite the people to repent. If I can change, you can change. I've come to appreciate your people in spite of the American narrative about the Soviets. Maybe you can appreciate me and my people, and your narrative can change about us as well. And so that really is what the preaching event is as well. Someone stands up from the congregation Moves forward and begins to tell about the story of how if I can change, you can change. That Christ has so enlivened the preacher with a word to speak to the people that the idea here isn't that, hey, you're okay, keep going in your direction, but that God is moving amongst us and calling us to enforce something. And And in spite of all of what I want to be, I'm on board with God's movement. And I'm trying to inspire and to speak as the preacher about what God's movement in the world looks like. And to say, hey, we've got maybe something we need to repent about today. Now, not every week is everyone going to have to repent about everything. But from week to week, we never know when that moment of the gospel is going to come that's going to speak to our heart to say, hey, and I'm not quite doing it right. And Jesus follows this up with his own preaching as well. I'm going to just poke out a few things from the Sermon on the Mount. But these words when Jesus is preaching... They're hard words. They're words saying to a people who are already following him. Remember that Jesus speaks the Sermon on on a mountainside to a group of people who have been so moved by his message and his grace that they've chosen to follow him. The people that Jesus is preaching to aren't the sinners. They're the people who are following Jesus, just like we are here today. And he still preaches hard words of repentance to them. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now, the kingdom of God is near doesn't mean that heaven is almost going to happen. The kingdom of God is near means the king is present, therefore the kingdom is near. All right? And that's the case with us today as well. The king is present with us when we gather together. So the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus preaches about a lifestyle that the kingdom of God urges us to live into. And to live out and so here are some of the things that he says just for a refresher uh, the beatitudes are some of the hardest things to hear blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy Now, none of those things are things that we value to be in American culture today. No one is telling you on the TV shows or the radio shows or the podcasts or the music we listen to, well, gee, you ought to get persecuted. That'd be cool. Or, hey, you know what characteristic you should really try out is meekness or mercy. Quite the opposite. We're told over and over and over, when at all costs, Win, win, win. And Jesus is painting a different sort of idea. How about this part of his sermon? You have, heard, you have heard that it is said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool will be a danger of the fire of hell. How about this? You have heard it say an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, strike, turn the other to them as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise and the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who loved you, what reward is that to get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know that your right, what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you hear how this sermon is so countercultural? Even then, it's countercultural, but it's countercultural to us today as well. The media we consume, the, the free time that we have, the relationships we have, we're trying to win, we're trying to get ahead, we're trying to build a kingdom where I am the king so that other people can see how great I am and worship at my throne. But here Jesus is saying, as long as the kingdom of heaven is near, let's behave like the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there's peace and there's grace and there's kindness, there's helpfulness. There's restoration There's hope And he's inviting us in very tangible ways to live into these things Instead of saying hey i'm going to get what's coming to me And the problem with the sort of self-esteem uh, christianity that we have today. It's actually been labeled as something when uh Uh, experts listen to the sermons of preachers in America today. They say that the religion of America is most closely related to the idea of moral therapeutic deism. All right, so let me break that out for you, okay? Meaning that moral, if you do good things, therapeutic, that God will take care of you and make you feel good about yourself. Deism that God is not actually active in our world today, that he's off in a distant place, almost like a bowler who let go of a bowling ball and hopes it knocks over all ten pins. Moral therapeutic deism, that a distant, far-out God who's not involved in our world today wants you to do nice things so that you can feel good about yourself. That is the predominant religion in America today. Now, that's experts saying that, e- experts who study the sociology of religion. Moral therapeutic deism. And maybe that's why when we read something like the Sermon on the Mount that could have been and should have been forming us for 2,000 years now, it still sounds like such foreign words. How do you even live like that? How do you even begin to act like that? How do we live into that? Jesus surely must have been speaking in metaphorical terms, right? He couldn't have been serious that we take a punch to the face and then turn to the other one and let him get a second strike. Who would do that? That doesn't even make sense. It reminds me of uh, Barack Obama when he became president. He was defending his Christianity. You all remember that that was a very big story. No, no, I'm not Muslim, I'm Christian. So he would often talk about his conversion story. And his conversion story, as he told it, was related directly to the Sermon on the Mount. He said that as he read the words of Jesus here, he recognized that that was who he wanted to be. He wanted to live into the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's a, that's a really interesting conversion story, that the Sermon on the Mount deeply spoke to him. And then when they ask him about his foreign policy and how that would relate to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you can't really run a defense department and take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Well, that may be true. But it's that sort of idea, again, that when we hear the words of Jesus, we want to often pick and choose the ones that work for us in the moment. We don't always want to live into the fullness of the message and gospel that Jesus is preaching to us, do we? We want to sort of take and pick the parts that work the best for us. And and so this idea when when Jesus is preaching here, this idea that we should probably listen, we should probably take seriously what he's saying. We should probably hear his sermon. And then we should probably live it out as well. When we gather into the church, we should expect that there's going to be times when we hear a sermon that it's going to step on our toes a little bit. That it's not just necessarily going to give us a bit of food to get through another week, but that every once in a while, the sermon, no matter how Christian we are, no matter how holy we are, no matter how many things we're getting right, that sometimes the sermon or the reading of the scripture or the enlivening of what Jesus says is going to seem like a a scoped rifle right at your heart that has spoken to me and it has called me out today. And that I recognize that, man, maybe I fall short. I'll be completely honest with you. It's very rarely a week that happens that I get up and preach to you that I have not been completely whacked around by the scripture that we're going to talk about today. It's very rarely that I come upon the scripture for the week and say, well, I've got that nailed. I can't wait to get everyone else to get it right. Quite the opposite. The more I come in contact with the scriptures, the more I hear good preaching, the more I do good devotionals, the more I recognize how short I fall and how much more grace I need to keep pulling me in the direction of the kingdom of God that's at hand. The kingdom of God that's alive and well and moving amongst us. This Christ who is alive and wants to be seen and known and to grab a hold of us and is present, I believe, in this place right now. I come to recognize how short I am from that. And for me, that's what good preaching is about, is to remind us of what the kingdom of God looks like. That it's at hand and that it's calling us to repentance, to be more and more like Christ was like. And so my hope and prayer is that when you come here, that you don't come here for the sake of being comfortable and that I don't greet you with comfortable words. I mean, I don't want you to feel like garbage when you leave, you know. I, you know I, 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 but I want the upliftingness of the sermon moment to be rooted in the gospel, that not in terms of who we are, that we're getting it right, that we're doing okay. Okay. I want the gospel to speak so loud to say, man, it doesn't matter how far gone I've been this week, because God is still calling after me, and next week, through the grace of God, I could look more like Christ. That it's through the grace of God that keeps coming at me no matter how rough last week was. The grace of God keeps coming for me. It keeps calling for more of me. It keeps grasping me and and, and grabbing hold of my heart and my imagination and my personality in new ways week after week. As the scriptures are being read and as the story of God is being talked about, we can live into the call of who God is. And so Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount this way. He says, Therefore, if anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. Folks, I know myself just well enough that if I'm going to pretend like I'm a firework who can shoot across the sky, that, that house of cards is going to fall. I'm not in control of anything. I'm not any extra special than anyone else. The more I try to build up my own kingdom, the pressures of the world that feel so depressing And so hard, the struggles, my inadequacies, all those things are the the waters and the winds that are going, the streams that rise, all of those things are coming, whether or not I think I'm excellent. But I know this, the more that I build myself and understand my personality, my personhood, my life on Christ and who He is and what He's done for me, the more and more that I recognize the winds and waves of life that I end up okay on the other side. And I don't need a Katy Perry song to tell me that I'm okay. Because I am okay. Because Christ is as solid as a rock as this world has ever known. And that even when I'm beat down, even when I'm feeling inadequate, even when I'm feeling not special, when I'm depressed, when I'm sad, when I'm hurt, Christ is there to lean on. And it's not always fun to submit myself to Christ. It's not always fun. I know you know that too. It's not always fun to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. But I believe we always find on the other side that he is good. That he has our best interests in mind. And that he's drawing us towards a future that is indescribable in human words. That one day we will sit face to face with him. And all of the times that we've been pierced by a sermon or a scripture reading and felt, oh, I do not want to do that. I do not want to be that. It will have all been worth it. Because when we gaze upon him and see him face to face, we will understand how simple and shallow the things we have had to put behind are. And how great and majestic and wonderful he is. And it will have all been worth it then. At this point, though, we get to celebrate his life around the table of our Lord. And like I said, I I wholly believe that Christ is present today, that he's not just some future God that we're going to see eventually, but that he interacts with us now, that he's present in this room, in this place, because we're gathered together in worship in him. And again, once again, no matter where you've been this week, no matter what struggle you've had this week, no matter what's in your future that you're afraid of, Christ meets us at his table and gives us his broken body and his shed blood And says I'm sufficient for you.